Listener Production. I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their ancestors past and elders present. I acknowledge that the First Nations across the continent have never ceded sovereignty and that the First Nations are the first lawmakers. Welcome back to another episode of Black Matters, a podcast that's about First Nations matters and most importantly, why they should matter to everyone. My name is MC from the Hit Radio Network and joining me as she does every single week, First Nations advocate, lawyer and proud Wiradjuri and Wawan woman, Teela Reid. Welcome back. Yama. And if this is your first time joining us on Black Matters and you're wondering, who are we? Who are these two people and why do they spell it B-L-A-K? Go back and listen to our podcast trailer. Check out all the apps. Everything will be explained for you. Now, on this podcast, we often talk about being an ally and being an authentic ally, particularly as we move forward to this referendum, because as we've said on countless occasions, it's not just a First Nations issue with this voice being enshrined in our constitution. It's an Australian issue and it's an issue for non-Indigenous Australian people as well. So we thought this week on the podcast, we'd talk about what being an ally actually means and how you can show your support to First Nations issues and businesses, but how to do it authentically. Where I wanted to start is around First Nations language and slang. At the end of every episode, we we talk about language mattering and we give you a First Nations word that you can hopefully use in your everyday life. But say things like, that's deadly. And, and things like, oh, gammon. Are these are these things that everyone can use? Is it a good thing or a bad thing if non-Indigenous people start using First Nations language and slang? Look, I think it's really important for all Australians to embrace the diversity of First Languages if particularly they're gifted it and have an opportunity to do that alongside First Nations peoples. I can't speak on behalf of other First Nations, but I certainly know the revitalization of the Wiradjuri language has really been cultivated by Uncle Stan Grant Sr. And something he says about first languages in particular, Wiradjuri language, it's that language is not about who you are. Language is about where you are. And I think that's such a powerful statement from Uncle Stan Grant Sr. in relation to place. Yep. And if we're all here on this place, on this amazing ancient continent, then I think we do have a duty and an obligation to really embrace and, and continue to grow and revitalise first languages. So in the same way, I guess, if you were in France for whatever reason and you walk into a cafe and you, you would say bonjour, to someone that's about to serve you your croissant or something like that. It's also fine here to say Yama and Yalu if you're on that nation's land. It just makes sense. Yeah, and I think it does come back to context Mm -hmm. as well and using language in a respectful way, as we say in Wiradjuri, by showing Yinjimara Mm -hmm. respect in a way of living and being and walking through the world. And so I I certainly aim to share and cultivate that. And, you know, you've started to use some language and lots of friends do. I mean, Australians would be surprised about the fact about how many, I think, terms and words they're already using are actually, in fact, mm-hmm. 
come from a first language. So if I see something that you're doing and you post something on Insta and, and often you are doing lots of very impressive things, you're totally fine to me to chuck up a couple of fire emojis with that's deadly and that's totally cool. As you say, as long as you're doing it with respect, with Yinji Mara and you're doing it the right way, totally fine. Yeah, I think that's coming back to just showing solidarity in those moments. And so much of allyship is being able to one, hold space for First Nations peoples in terms of when they step up and celebrate who they are and and where we are. And that act of holding space and reinforcing those moments of celebration with solidarity is really important and really key for all Australians. So what about First Nations art? Are there rules around what you can buy, what you can't buy? For example, I've got a little pot that was designed by a First Nations artist from South Australia. My birthday last year, my wife bought me a didgeridoo. We, we found an elder that pointed us in the right direction to get a traditionally made didgeridoo. So I've got a, I've got a didge at home. I've got two didgeridoos at home. I've got the pot. Is it, is do, you know, do you know the other term for didgeridoo? Give it to me. Yadaki. Yadaki. Yeah. And is that is that a type of didgeridoo or is that just another word for didgeridoo? So it's interesting because some of the context around this, when colonisers came to so-called Australia and colonised and set up the colony, they were hearing this sound that come from this particular instrument. And, of course, we know that it is a male-only instrument, the yadaki. Okay. And women don't play it as a matter of cultural practice. But when white people heard and saw it being performed, the sound of it also sounded like didgeridoo, didgeridoo, didgeridoo. So they gave it the name. It's actually a colonial name, didgeridoo. The the traditional term or the first term for it is actually Yadaki. Did you know that, that? For those that say this isn't an educational experience, listening to Black Matters are wrong, I've learned something today. So there, there's there's a photo of me with my Yadaki that my wife got me for my birthday, and it's it's stunning. Like, it sits next to my bed in my bedroom. Am I allowed to play it? Look, as I said, I am not culturally allowed to do it and wouldn't do it, so I'm probably not the person to ask that question to. I lived, I, in, when I, in when all I honesty. to Sydney the first time around, I lived with two Aboriginal men and they used to play the Yadaki mm. uh, after dinner often and they would say to me, come play, come play. So I picked up a few skills through them. The one thing I need to learn is how to properly cycle breathe. It's the only thing stopping me from playing it for longer than seven seconds. Mm-hmm. But if you're invited, I guess then it's completely okay. And as, I guess, with many things, as long as you're doing it with Injimara. And exactly kind of what you said just then, the explanation about your housemates who mm-hmm. were First Nations um, when you first come to Gadigal and they were inviting you. Mm to join their space, then that would seem appropriate in that context. Yep. And context does matter. Yeah, you know, I think there there are different tensions and layers to it when we see non-First Nations people playing it for a commercial benefit. Okay, right. Um, I think there are clearly steps and a need to engage with the local community if, 
non-Indigenous Australians are doing that. Look, I'm not an expert on it, but these are just my observations so over you, time. if you walk past an art gallery and there is Indigenous art in that gallery, is it totally fine to go, that looks good? Because a lot of... It, a lot of Indigenous art is absolutely stunning. I love First Nations art. It is stunning. Can like, anyone can is, anyone buy it and stick it on their wall at home? I think it also comes back to who is producing it and whether that is happening in an ethical and a sustainable way. There mm-hmm. are so many First Nations art centres around the country and I make sure when I'm purchasing First Nations art, particularly that's not from my nation, that I'm making sure I'm purchasing that in an ethical way directly through the artist, if I can, or through the centre that represents that artist and where they, um, you know, advertise their art. I think there, there are clear controversial issues. Like you go down to Circular Quay or in the middle of Sydney, we still have huge problems mm-hmm. with the exploitation of First Nations art that is produced offshore. And I think that is such a really slippery slope and really dangerous. And I, it makes me feel sick thinking that people are exploiting it in that way. One that I've found a little interesting and at times can be a little tough to navigate is uh, clothing. You so often see shirts with Aboriginal flags. Sometimes it can be a tricky one knowing what you can and can't wear because sometimes when you look at a brand's website, there might be ally only, that might be uh, Indigenous only. As an ally, what can and can't you wear? Because again, I've got some gear at home, which I love and, it, and it's awesome and I wear it all the time, but it can be a little... It, sometimes can be tricky to navigate knowing what's respectful and maybe what's crossing a line. Well, firstly, I love seeing you step out in First Nations gear. Um, what? Can we, shout out to Take Pride Movement, by the way. Yeah. First Nations label, some gear I've got. Big it, shout out to them. Yeah, so they they have so much like really cool stuff. I love. Also, again, like I'm not in the fashion industry, but I'm seriously like I'm aware of what you're saying about when on some websites where I'll say they have a little sticker on it going ally-friendly, not Mm. ally-friendly or whatever. I guess just pay attention to what they're saying about those pieces. I I guess where I'm trying to get to here is, for me personally, like I wear, buy, look at the stuff because I think it A, looks great and B, I think it sends a strong message and if you're supporting black business you can only be doing a good thing. But, but sometimes, you know, you see people wearing stuff and, and, and you think to yourself, is there a cultural appropriation thing that we need to be careful with to not cross a line? I think absolutely, yeah. Where brands are saying and stating quite clearly that something is ally-friendly, then go for it. And especially around movements and protests where we see every invasion or survival day Lots of allies show up in the Aboriginal flag or, you know, White Australia has a Black History shirts, things like that. Those grassroots movements are really key to showing and also supporting allyship and being there, not just physically, but also demonstrating um, with what you're wearing is also really important. But don't just do it on that day. Mm. Do it the other 365 days. There is another uh, layer to it at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is where we do see people going to music festivals and culturally appropriating their festival outfits. Like, 
these contexts are not okay to appropriate First Nations cultures for your festival get up. So if you were to buy, let's... It's offensive. If you were to buy uh, an Aboriginal branded shirt from a tourist shop, right? Because there's a lot of them, as we said, in major cities, it's everywhere. What's if that's all you've got access to? Ensure, it says the Made in China stamp. It's on there. And so none of the profits are going to First Nations people or organisations, but you want to wear it to start conversations, to talk about it. Is that okay? No. Never okay? No. Make your voice known in that context that you are totally against that kind of appropriation and exploitation of First Nations art. Tell the person behind the counter, write to our representatives, make complaints where you can, put it on your social media that it's not acceptable. No, it's not. It's really capitalising on our First Nations cultures and it's not for exploitation by other people. And it's, yeah, it's just totally a no-go. All right, what, what... Even if you do have good intentions, this is the slippery slope where good intentions can really start to create bigger problems. All right, what... What is then not being an authentic ally? I'm assuming it's the people, like you say, that turn up to the music festival, that just plonk on the gear because they think it looks good and they want to fit in and be one of the people. Is it also the person that puts up uh, a tile on Invasion Day but then never mentions it again? Is someone that's not an ally just does it for the attention once or twice and then never mentions it again? Yeah. You know, the other word for it is performative allyship when you're doing it just for the likes or the trend or what's popular online and on social media at that point in time because you are positioning yourself as an ally who, uh, yes, is there for that moment but not the long haul. And sure, it might feel good on that one day, but are you following that up with action beyond the performative stuff day in and day out. Because as a First Nations person, this kind of advocacy and movement and what we stand for as sovereign people on our own land, that work doesn't stop. And I think lots of allies think, oh, this feels good. You know, I'm here for my black friend or uh, at least I posted the tile and I showed some support around the Black Lives Matter. But I think those are moments where people as well expect to feel good about their allyship. And actually, it's ally shit. Like, (laughs) (laughs) really, like, so much part of our movement is totally about not just being on the front line on those significant days, but making sure that you're there for the long haul. And in fact, a lot of our movements and um, our advocacy are really difficult and really hard labour and require us to show up in so many different spaces 24-7 to honour the legacy of our ancestors. And that means that allies as well need to be prepared to get uncomfortable with the status quo. So even when all of those people turn up, as you say, just to feel good and so they can go, oh, we saw you at the thing, you're so great, yeah, I'm an ally, but then do nothing else. Even them doing it just that once, is that at least something Or is that not actually helping? Well, it depends what action you take after. Don't just show up on the one day or one day a year or 
do an acknowledgement and then not be really working for change in your organisations day in and day out. You know, so lots of people go, oh, I'm just not too sure. Like, I don't want to stuff up or I don't want to step on anyone's toes. But also part of allyship really is about being prepared to get uncomfortable. Yes, you're going to make mistakes, but it's about also learning from those mistakes and moving through so we can build better relationships for the future of our communities, our local communities, our and our nation. Just because I like using the word, um, any other examples of ally shit you'd like to discuss? <laughs> Another example of ally shit, especially the context where I work, it's, it's a very competitive field. You know, you often... You, you work in 9,000 fields, so which one is it? <laughs> generally the legal profession, I'll say, without identifying a particular context. But we have lots of, I think, performative allyship in this space where, for example, lots of people want to represent Aboriginal clients or be the expert on Aboriginal issues and therefore almost become part of the systemic problem. Because they're speaking on behalf of First Nations yeah. people, not supporting the actual First Nations voices and issues. Exactly. And then, you know, uh, using that experience as a stepping stone to build bigger career moments. And once they're there, that becomes their entire experience. But then they've forgotten about, you know, what it actually means to stand and hold that space and defend and represent Aboriginal clients. So I think that's another example of ally shit. And I'm sure that there are some people listening and probably feel, yeah. I know I know that it's not our job to title the podcast episodes, but um, Producer Simon, this podcast is being called Allyship versus Ally Shit, just so you know. That's what we're calling it, all right? Absolutely. No, he's telling us to calm down. It's not our job. (laughs) We talked at the start of the podcast about using First Nations language more broadly as a way to be an ally, and we like to wrap up every episode with a First Nations word uh, because language matters. Can I I choose one this week? Oh, my God, that would be so good. You go for it. We we spoke about it at the start of the podcast, and it's something that I I never knew, that the actual name for a didgeridoo is a yadaki. Word of the week this week. I told you something. Is yadaki. Great. That's my mind blowing. Because you actually see your eyes like light up. Because you just assume, I just assumed that a didgeridoo <laughs> was called a didgeridoo because that was the name that it always was. It wasn't because the white fellas heard the sound and thought, oh, it sounds didgeridoo, didgeridoo. Let's call it a didgeridoo. It's so, it just goes to show how simple the English language is as well. <laughs> hey, that dog's bark sounds like a wolf. Let's call it a wolf because that's how it sounds. <laughs> now, if you like listening to Black Matters, a, a great way to show authentic allyship, tell every person you know in your life to listen to this podcast. Yeah. It's a great way to start. If you want to check out more episodes, there's a whole bunch there. Uh, the history of treaty and voice, why we do acknowledgements of country. Uh, and we talk with elders as well. It's all that big back catalogue for you to check out. And if you like listening to Black Matters and want to hear and support Australia's diverse and contemporary First Nations music, jump over to Indigenous. It's a DAB station all about First Nations music and you can find it now on the listener app. Teela, as always, thank you so much. Yalu. Yalu. It's been a good one. Oh.